You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graver's conversation with Alberto Manuel. Good morning, Alberto. Good morning, Paul. How are you? I am very well and happier for speaking with you on, on this very first day of spring. For us, it's the very first day of autumn. You mean in, in, uh, in Argentina? I mean in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, there is a wonderful map of the world made by the Australians that shows the correct positioning of the world. And we are up and you are down. <laughs> um, tell me more about that map. Well, it's, it, it, it's a, a, a map that was made um, to show how um, uh, conventional the idea of north and south is. Um, it was a, a, an idea that was developed, obviously, by the Europeans um, for uh, us in the Southern Hemisphere. It never felt as if we were upside down. Uh, t this, this immediately leads me to, to ask you about how important maps are for you. I love maps because they are the representation of the geography that we form in the mind. Um, they are really the iconography of our imagination. I, I, I've always felt, even as a child, that if I could map um, the places that I wanted to visit, I would be there even if I couldn't travel to those places. And I love the maps that I found in my children's books from, from Enid Blyton to Treasure Island. I was so, in love with maps. I still am. So, so early on, you, you already foresaw what it would mean to to not go somewhere, to lose a place even before having been there, ever been there, or perhaps never been there? Well, Melville said that um, real places are not on the maps because you cannot make a cartography of what is reality for you. But I, I believe that he was mistaken. I always am drawing maps and looking at maps to to see where I, I'm going, uh, at least in the mind. And it's, it's fun uh, to explore the map section of the National Library now that I am in Buenos Aires directing that monster. We have a wonderful map section and you find all these conceptions of what uh, your country or your city or the world was like. Um, for people uh, in different ages, I, I find that fascinating. What 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 map have you recently seen that particularly struck you? Do you remember? Well, um, yes, um, we have some of Cortázar's papers, and um, you know that one of his most famous novels is Hopscotch, which is a novel that the reader constructs as um, 
he or she goes, um, choosing what chapter you will read next. And he did it based on uh, the idea of a map of Buenos Aires and the idea of a map of Paris. <clears throat> and he um, made a cut and paste map of these uh, two places. And it's wonderful because Buenos Aires flows into Paris and Paris flows into Buenos Aires. And as in the novel, um, it doesn't matter where you are. You're in, 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 in one of these cities. Um, Paris imagined as Buenos Aires, so Buenos Aires imagined as Paris. And one of my, my, my favorite books of yours is all about imaginary places. Uh, that was in the past, and besides the when she's dead. Um, we, um, my friend Gianni Guadalupe and I imagined this book a long, long, long time ago. I just turned 70. I know, I know. We nearly share a birthday. Mine is on the Ides of March. Uh, so be, ah. beware, beware, and yours is on March 13th. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a spring chicken, not even a summer chicken, but kind of an early autumn chicken. But I know that your birthday was March 13th. And so, Alberto, happy birthday. We're both Pisces. To you, Paul, yes. Well, I was saying that um, in, I was working for a publisher in Milan, and Gianni Guadalupe um, was a colleague of mine, and he had the idea of, of um, constructing a kind of, of uh, uh, travel guide to the vampire city in a novel by Paul Feval, and we had a lot of fun uh, writing it out and telling the traveler where he or she should eat or not eat or where to sleep or, above all, where not to sleep. Um, and we had so much fun with that that we went on to uh, write about different imaginary places and about 3,000 entries uh, later, we had this book, which has had its own life ever since. It's a it's a wonderful book, and it it really makes one want to go to the places you've you've imagined. Yes, yes, yes. That was the the intention, um, and uh, it, it, it's it's uh, wonderful because you realize that. Um, uh, the imagination constructs a geography that is endless, and it is as if um, we felt that our borders are too constraining, and so we have to always go beyond the horizon, like uh, Ulysses in the Commedia, and uh, explore that which lies beyond, even if we know that it will lead to our destruction. Well, you know, it, I, I feel that in, in many ways what you just said is an extraordinary definition of, of what literature affords us, even if for only a short moment, namely, na namely that voyage. And I was thinking as we were talking about, about maps of, of that poem I always so loved growing up. Um, I, I think it's called The Voyage by Baudelaire, where he says, Pour l'enfant amoureux de cartes et d'estampes, l'univers est égal à son vaste appétit. For the child in love with, with, maps and stamps uh, 
the universe is equal to his vast appetite or something like that. I'm, I'm obviously terribly translating this. No, yes, uh, absolutely. I think we always have felt that as children, uh, maps and stamps, yes, that, that they belong to the same universe. Um, I collected stamps as a, as a child, and I'm sure you did too. I did, I did, and I have found some of those old stamp al- albums, and they are... They are pretty amazing in terms of just, you know, how I, how I devise to arrange them. And we'll, we'll be speaking about how we arrange, particularly how we arrange books, but there's obviously a whole taxonomy of how one might arrange stamps. Alberto, in your new book, which I, I find enthralling, which I think is just coming out as we speak, called Packing My Library, an elegy and ten, Today, oh, it's so exciting, the first day of spring, at least spring on on the northern hemisphere where we're wrong. But in this book, uh, Packing My Library, An Elegy and Ten Digressions, you have a, a, a beautiful epigram and dedication for Craig, um, which I will read out, um, which is from Cicero on Friendship. And you, you say in it, a man would have no pleasure in discovering all the beauties of the universe, even in heaven itself, unless he had a partner with whom he might share his joys, which made me immediately think of the line of Daphne du Maurier, who wrote, I like simple things, books, being alone, or with somebody who understands. Oh, quite, yes, quite. And it, it's, it's as if the, the library which you have packed up, and I want to hear all about that packing up, would be meaningless if it was just purely and totally solitary. Library is never solitary. That's right. You are accompanied by those ghosts. Um, uh, you remember the scene when Bergot dies in A La Recherche, and he is surrounded by his books, and in the dusk, the shape of the books on the upper shelves are like angels looking down at him. Um, I've always felt that in a library I'm never really alone. I'm with all these spirits and, and voices and uh, offered distractions and conversations. So uh, a, a library is a private public place. It's a, a place in which you are among friends. Um, I've always felt that. And and now those friends are... Ha- uh, they are calling to me from the tomb. Um, you know, we had to um, sell the house in France where we lived for 15 years just south of the Loire in a beautiful um, medieval presbytery where I, we had set up the collection of, uh, at the time, 30,000, now 40,000 books. And... Uh, we packed the books up, and the boxes are now in um, a storage room in Montreal, where my 
Quebec publisher kindly allowed me to keep them, but they call out to me at night, and I'm uh, hoping that they will resurrect one day. But uh, well, um, maybe someone in your audience knows of a place in New York that um, would allow me to set up the library of forty thousand books. You know, if if that happened, if a borough or or an institution wanted to lodge this library, I would donate it to the institution, just on condition that I could keep using the books because they're useless in the boxes. So, if if any of your listeners is of a a, a, a generous intellectual heart, then um, I'd love to hear from them. Well, what what a what a fantastic offer in 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 a sense. It's an offer that is not dissimilar to the way you felt about the medieval house you occupied in the Loire Valley, where you felt that the house and the garden was not really totally yours. You were simply no. take you were simply taking care of it as you were t- tending to the garden and tending to the library. So the same thing would be true here. The library, though yours, of course would be, in some sense, now everyone's. Oh, yes. No, I want that to be like that. You know, I live in New York in uh, a two-bedroom apartment, uh, which is made for dwarfs. Um, so I cannot keep more than a few books here. So I would gladly give the books to an institution, private or or um, uh, public, um, that uh, they would want to have a, a library. It's a library that has two identities, I think. One is built around the history of reading, which is my subject. So how we became readers, how we read in different places of the world, how we evolved the culture of books and now the culture of, of uh, the electronic text. And that is the main theme of the one part of the library. And the other is the idea that uh, literature is multicultural, universal. It represented by the Tower of Babel, but not as a curse, but as a blessing, where um, the uh, vengeful God that doesn't want us to rise to the heavens thinks that he is punishing us by dividing the language that we spoke into many, but he is really giving us the marvelous gift of knowing that we name things in different ways, in different places, and the platonic idea of uh, a book or a dog or a person is uh, reflected in that myriad naming uh, in Slovenian, in French, in Chinese, in Urdu, in Spanish, and uh, uh, we become so much richer thanks to the Curse of Babel. So that's the subject of the second part of the library. 
You know, um, when you when you mentioned the Platonic idea, I remember so clearly the years I spent at a somewhat Jesuit university, Louvain in Belgium, where we had learned all about Plato and the ideas, and all exams were oral. And one of my friends was asked the idea by was asked the question by by a professor, how many pens are on this table? The professor having put one of his fountain pens on the table. And my friend got up, took the pen, put it in his suit and said to the professor, please take the other one. Isn't it wonderful? It teaches you a certain way of of thinking and of thinking quickly on your feet and of thinking while things happen. One of the things I, I, I so want to talk to you about, of course, especially, you know, as you mentioned, the Library of Babel, I think it's nearly a knee-jerk reaction, but a good one. There are good and bad knee-jerk reactions to to think of, of Borges, and to think of Borges particularly as he intersects so extraordinarily with you, because you you spent many a years reading to him, and there is a passage, which I think you know I love in your, in your book with Borges, where you write, Borges loved conversation, and at meals would select what he called unobtrusive fare, such as white rice or pasta, so that the experience of eating would not distract him from the talk. Quite, yeah. He um, he wasn't interested in food as he wasn't interested in music or, or the visual arts. Um, he was only interested in the word and the shared word and where the word could take you, those mental maps, going back to the idea of maps that literature unscrolls for us. And uh, during the meals, he didn't want to be distracted by the food, whether uh, good or bad, it had to be bland. I remember the scandal he caused when it was at Harvard, I think, where he was giving those marvelous lectures. I know, poetry. The, the, Nor- the Norton Lectures. Pardon? Yes. The Norton right. Lectures. And, yeah, it's called The Craft of Verse. Yes. It's one of his best books. And um, they invited him to a grand dinner, and they asked him what he wanted to eat. And he asked for Campbell's tomato soup. How fantastic. Candle among the university gourmets. That is a that is a magnificent story. I'm I'm sure you've you've been asked this question many times. But what did you take most pleasure reading to him, or differently put, what did he love for you to read most? Well, the um, the situation in which I found myself was peculiar because. Um, I was 15, 16 at the um, time I was working in a bookstore in Buenos Aires uh, where Borges came to buy his books and he asked me one day whether I wouldn't come in the evening to read to him. Um, I thought it was just a favor that I was doing for this nice old blind man. Little did I know what gift um, fortune was laying in my path. 
path. But it wasn't um, a reading um, as we would say, as if you asked me to come and read for you and I would choose something um, and uh, I would read it out to you in my intonation. He had a plan. When he became blind in the mid-50s, he decided that he would no longer write prose. He would write poetry because he said that poetry came to him as music, to which he added words, and then he could dictate those words. But that to write prose, he said, he had to see his hand write. And so he had uh, stopped writing prose, but over the years, um, the arguments and, and, and plots and, and ideas for, for stories came to him. And uh, after a time, this is in the mid-60s, so 10 years into his blindness, um, he wanted to revisit the stories that he thought were great. Borges had very peculiar tastes, and um, he thought of certain writers as the great writers. The best writer in French for him was Voltaire. The best writer in Portuguese was Essa de Queiroz. The best writers in English were Stevenson, Kipling, Chesterton, and Sir Thomas Brown. So, um, looking for stories, he would ask me to read to him Kipling stories, um, Henry James, Stevenson, Chesterton, but above all Kipling, because <clears throat> few people read Kipling nowadays. They have the idea that either he is this imperialist and mm, therefore should not be read, or a writer of stories for children, they think of uh, the Jungle Book. But Kipling is so much more his early stories and his very complex, dark, later stories are absolute masterpieces, and I discovered them thanks to Borges. So if uh, if I had to thank Borges for just one thing, it would be for the discovery of Kipling. What Kipling? What Kipling? Well, the stories of plain tales from the hills, for instance, are, um, Borges calls them laconic masterpieces, and that they are. And the later stories, such as The Wish House, uh, or uh, Mary Postgate, or Unprofessional, these, these are, uh, uh, are stories that we don't read now, but if somebody wants to learn to write in English, I would say first read Kipling. How extraordinary and I I don't I don't know those stories and Ah and well there, there you have you have a wonderful time in front of you. Um I'll send you a list of my favorite Kipling stories. Oh please please do please uh, you please do will have a Please, please do. I, I would, I would love that, and I, and I'll let all the listeners know uh, what that list is made of, so they too uh, can can discover them. I don't want to be the only recipient of of this gift. Um, you know, reader is no reader is ever an only recipient because if 
you love something, you want to run out into the street and grab somebody by the lapels and say, you have to read this, you have to read this. Uh, and, and, and how, and how, and I feel, I feel so often that, um, that, that is the experience I love most. We have this in common, you and I, Alberto, that I, I too worked in a, in a, in a bookstore and I, I would remember so clearly um, wishing to to put in the hands of of the various customers who came in, famous writers and not famous writers, uh, certain books that I loved, or or figuring out what is it that they they might take to uh, this this week. I'm I'm curious uh, by a by the the subtitle, though it doesn't really feel like the subtitle. It feels like really part of the title, which is an elegy and ten digressions. The word digression to me is tremendously important, uh, partly, I suspect, because of an early reading of um, Lawrence Stern and in Tristram Shandy, you, you will remember, I'm sure, given that today is the first day of spring, he says, digressions incontestably are the sunshine, the life, the soul, of reading, take them out, and one cold winter would rain on every page. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, um, Cynthia Ojik, who uh, for me is one of the great novelists and essayists of our time, um, she writes um, in one of her books of essays that uh, the essay writer is of one of two kinds. One, the writer who goes from A to Z, knowing exactly where he or she is going, and the writer who starts off with a certain idea, uh, but is distracted by, uh, like Little Red Riding Hood, by the, the flowers in the forest, and uh, goes on a different path, and meets adventure. Um, I certainly belong to the second kind. I can't keep a straight idea in my head. Um, I, I love digressions because they force me to think in different directions and in, in much more depth. I think that uh, straight thinkers tend to be superficial because they don't ask enough questions. And of course... Um, as we know, literature is not about answers, but about asking better questions. You know, Adam Phillips, uh, a psychoanalyst I very much admire and a, a great essayist, True. said that um, digression is secular revelation. Ah, very good, very good. Yes, certainly, certainly, yes. Revelation is in digressions. Um, it's about what lies beyond and to the side of what you see. I think I told you that once upon a time when I was a pretend scholar and taught at various universities, I wanted to teach a class on digression and I never got further than the first sentence, which would have been, this is a course on digression, but before I begin, in any event, one, one, one thing I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious about, which I think is at the heart and soul of perhaps uh, melancholic um, 
a pain one one feels when reading this this new book of yours packing my library is the inclusion before the word ten digressions of an elegy why is it elegiac because i buried my library the library um we had set up in france uh, now 20 years ago was uh, the reunion of many libraries, the rest of the library of my childhood, the progressive libraries that I had in my adolescence and through my adulthood, uh, the libraries of different places in which I lived, where I would pack up those libraries and, and send them into storage and then bring them back and set them up. And as every normal person, I, uh, I had never lived in a space large enough to lodge them until I came onto this place in France. And there I thought that at last I would have all my books and that I would die on, uh, among the shelves of that library. Um, and that, uh, I wanted, I wanted someone to do what they do with dead, um, when, when a beekeeper dies, you know, what the, the, they do. They go and tell the bees that the beekeeper is no longer there. That's a, a ritual in the beekeeping world, and I wanted to be a ritual among bookkeepers as well. Uh, I think that when the owner of a library dies, somebody should go into the library and tell the books that their reader is no longer there. I wanted somebody to come and do this in my library. This is such an extraordinary uh, story, the story of the beekeeper. It reminds me of uh, an African saying which says that when an old person dies, a library disappears with him. Yes, bursts into flames. But that is, of course, in, uh, in oral cultures, that, that, is, that is absolutely true. Uh, in the cultures of the written word, uh, the reader, that particular reader of that library disappears, but other readers come into the library and resurrect the, the action, um, while in an oral society, of course, the transmission of the text depends on the presence of the person in real time and real space. Um, with the invention of writing, we conquered time and space. There is a very moving letter that we have written on a clay tablet 5,000 years ago where the recipient of the letter um, has written back and said, I received your letter and it was as if you were with me here and I could embrace you and hear your voice. Oh. So he was conscious that that, that reader of the disappearance of the obstacles of time and space. You know, um, Alberto, I wonder if, if you would agree with this assessment that though there is such loss, and in a way you say your books are buried and 
and nearly half dead because they are all in boxes and away from from your gaze, writing this book, packing my library, is a way of of keeping them um, just at arm's distance, um, nearly resurrected. Yeah, and and they have resurrected several times um, since. Um, uh, a wonderful uh, video artist from Turkey, uh, Ali Kazma, has made a video of the library uh, while it was still standing, and it was shown at the Jeu de Pomme in in Paris in the Tuileries Gardens, and it's traveling now throughout the world. Perhaps it will come to New York. And then Robert Lepage uh, created um, a three-dimensional visit to ten libraries based on my library and my book, The Library at Night, which opened in Montreal, then went to Quebec, and then to Moscow, and then to Paris, and to Nantes, and I think it will come to the Morgan at some point. So even if the library is not standing where it did, it is alive in these other creations, like after the destruction of the second destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, the Jews kept on with the rituals as if they were in that same physical space, that is to say, they took as many steps as they would have taken when the building was standing, and this is kept up to today. So in some sense, our our rituals and our uh, reconstructions keep these precious things alive in spite of them having physically disappeared. Between the, this story you just told and the beekeepers, there is such a, a an extraordinary continuum, and I think it's a continuum also of a of a of a desire for the tactile, a desire for oh, yeah. for what one one might call tactile inebriation. There is this this line which I wonder if you know that has haunted me for for a long time too, Alberto, where Rainer Maria Rilke speaks about loss, and he says. Now loss, however cruel, is powerless against possession, which it completes or even affirms. Loss is in fact nothing else than a second acquisition, but now completely interiorized and just as intense. And I feel in, in, in a sense you, you are living with this now, that your library is away and that you can imagine it. You can imagine each and every one of the boxes, it would seem. But because of what Rilke says, we know that every real paradise is a paradise lost. And I know that the loss of my library confirms its importance and confirms its existence as paradise. Now, um, you you were mentioning a, a little bit earlier the library at at night, which is another one of your books that I I adore, and we had once occasion to speak about it in in public, 
And in it, you mention one of my very, very favorite texts, which I think takes on more meaning with a passage of every day, maybe nearly every minute, which is Flaubert's last book, uh, Bouvard et Pécuchet. And, 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 you know, I am, I am wondering in, in the world in which we're living now, how Bouvard, Bouvard and Pécuchet strike you, how these two clowns who try to classify all knowledge strike you at this moment, and perhaps as a director of the library in Buenos Aires. Well, every library has uh, something of uh, Bouvard and Pécuchet's world. Every library tries to accumulate uh, more or less randomly in spite of, of trying to direct the collections, they become random because chance brings so many things into the library. And every library, whether it's physical or whether it's the internet, um, is in some sense or has some of the ridiculous quality of Bouvard and Pécuchet's research. Um, We want to know, we think that in the accumulation of facts is knowledge, and um, we want to have that knowledge present in spite of not being able to access everything. The accumulation of knowledge, we learn, is not knowledge, and have Having everything at our disposal, as we are made to believe we have in the Internet or in the Library of Congress, doesn't mean that we have access to even the smallest part of knowledge. We we have to know what it is that we're looking for before we uh, find it. And uh, it becomes a vicious circle because in order to find it, then you have to know what you're looking for. And you have to also, to come back to the word digression, you have to also be um, able in some way to, re- to really lose yourself. Um, you know that... that wa- there is a, um, an Argentinian poet that I uh, adore. Um, she committed suicide in the late 60s. And uh, I, to my mind, she is the most important... Spanish language poet of the 20th century. Um, her name was Alejandra Pizarnik, and um, she speaks of this need for digression um, in in many of her very short texts. Um, look, there's there's one that's called uh, Re- Rescue, um, and it's just two lines. Would you would you would you do us the pleasure of reading it? Um, let me read you the English translation first, and then I will read you the original Spanish. Is the English translation yours? Well, yes, mm, but that should not deter you from the poem. So it's called Rescue. And it is always the lilac garden on the far side of the river. If the soul asks, is it far, you will answer, on the far side of the river, not this one, but that. And now in Spanish, rescate, 
y es siempre el jardín de lilas del otro lado del río. Si el alma pregunta si queda lejos, se le responderá, del otro lado del río, no este, sino aquel. This is from a book she wrote, Extracción de la Piedra de Locura, The Extraction of the Stone of Madness, from 1968. I, I don't know her. Do you have other poems of hers you might read? Well, um, for instance, this is a wonderful love poem. It's called um, On Your Birthday. Receive this face of mine, speechless and begging. Receive this love that I ask you for. Receive what is in me that is you. En tu aniversario, recibe este rostro mío, mudo, mendigo. Recibe este amor que te pido. Recibe lo que hay en mí que eres tú. This is from um, an earlier book, 1965, um, Los Trabajos y las Noches the work, the labors, and the nights. Truly, truly extraordinary poems and um, amazing as always that she hasn't hit these shores or at least she hasn't hit my shores. I, uh, I, I, will, I will read her now. And English. Uh, you can find her poems. Um, the French have published both her complete poetry and her complete prose. She was a, a wonderful um, writer of diaries. Her, her, her journals are extraordinary. And then she has some uh, magnificent essays as well. Um, she's very uh, important to the newer generations of poets in Spanish. Alberto, in, in, in closing, I, I'm, I'm thinking of your library and I'm thinking of your library all packed up. And of course, I'm, I'm constantly thinking of it. I, I am sure and I'm sure the library in some way, as you said, of the beekeeper is thinking of you. And I'm thinking, of course, also of one of my favorite essays, which I think is en filigrane, is behind your book, which is Benjamin's Essay unpacking my library, packing my bibliotheque out. It starts there, of course. Yes, it, of it, course. It, 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 it must. And you know, um, I was going to read you some Benjamin, but instead I'll read you this one line of Umberto Eco and have you comment on it. Uh, because in a way, I think you believe like, like Umberto Eco believed that a library is in a sense, uh, a veiled autobiography of its owner. He says the contents of someone's bookcase are part of their history, like an ancestral portrait. I have always said that um, I could write the life of a person um, without meeting that person if I stepped into that person's library. You know, um, in uh, Eugene Onegin, when Tatiana is waiting for him in his library, she looks through the bookshelves trying to understand who that man is. And I think Tatiana is absolutely right. We can guess the true soul of a reader through the books on the bookshelf. 
house and show me your library, I will afterwards tell you who you are. Um, you know, Roland Barthes said somewhere that, tell me how you classify and I will tell you who you are. Um, Alberto, you will get an invitation to come to, to my home sometime soon. In the meantime, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me on the phone today. And I want everyone who has listened in, who has eavesdropped, to go and, and read Packing My Library, An Elegy and Ten Digressions. Alberto, as always, a, a huge pleasure, a delight. Um, to talk Thank with you. you. Be well. A bientôt. And, and you too. Till next time. Till next Bye. time. Happy birthday. And you too. Bye. Bye-bye.